Hello, welcome back to the Classical Music Pod. Today, Tim talks to composer Laura Bowler about her new bicycle-powered piece, Houses Slide. Sam writes a new Penguin-inspired libretto for Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. And we discover the stringent new criteria for writing Quebec's lift music. Sam, can you tell me what this catchy song is? I can tell you, Tim, what it is. It's a trap. <laughs> it's an invitation to go in really hard and criticise it until you find out that it's actually written by sweet children and uh, mm. the government are using these little nine-year-olds as a human shield. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> the, the poor children at St John's Primary School, Bradford, yeah. I believe. Yes. And although it sounds like um, sort of jingoistic rubbish, if it's just a nice thing that some kids wanted to do, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Perhaps more people would feel inspired to write pro-Britain songs and m- music if maybe our leaders were living out those values rather than contradicting them. Those of us who make these rules have got to stick by them, and that's why I've got to resign. That's very tactful. I was expecting you to go real hard. Should we just? <laughs> I just want to read out one of the lines, which I think is particularly worth zooming in on, mm. even though it might have been written unwittingly by a child. Our nation survived through many storms and many wars. We've opened our doors and widened our island shores. Ah, mm. I wonder what that might be referenced to. The entire 19th century. I know. I, I mean, at least our colonial past is finally being taught. In yeah. schools, I suppose you could say. I would suggest that maybe if the investment and education of music leaders was of a higher standard, mm. um, then the person who was leading those small children might have felt better armed and equipped to draw something even better out of them. Yes, again. Just trying to find the tactful line. Very tactful. Don't dig into a whole lot of kids or music teachers. We should just explain, for those that don't know, this is the UK Department for Education's official new anthem written and sung by the children of St John's Primary School in Bradford. The Department of Education spent last week encouraging schools to perform the song on Friday the 25th of June, yesterday for us, which was apparently One Britain, One Nation Day, though it failed to appreciate that most Scottish schools would actually have broken up by that point, which is awkward. 
as you can imagine, the reaction on social media wasn't as tactful as yours just Aww. was. The Scottish playwright John Byrne wrote, This is what happens when you make all songwriters and musicians retrain in cyber. Uh, and <laughs> comedian Alistair Green commented, We're having a total breakdown as a country. It's incredible to watch. We just no longer have any idea who we are or what we want. I can't stop laughing. It's mad. <laughs> anyway, Sam, where else in the world have jingoism and singing clashed awkwardly this week? Oh, I, usually North America. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, not the bit you'd expect, though. It, this is Quebec. Quebec's Minister mm. of Culture and Communications, Natalie Roy, has announced that elevator and telephone hold music used by Quebec government services will have to feature 100% Quebeci artists. <laughs> Apparently, after waiting on hold with the culture ministry, Roy was stunned to hear an American singing me a little song in English, and so brought in the change with immediate effect. I really enjoyed the finger quotes through all of that, and I'm yep. sure the listeners will too. That was one but of the, the listeners. Uh, well, I mean, kind of good. Mm. We've spoken before about the overlap between um, how things that we maybe perceive of as negative, as like Brexit, can occasionally line up with things we perceive as positive, like green localism. Mm -hmm. uh, if this means that more Quebeci artists are getting a leg up and investment from their own government, that's kind of good, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is good. I should also mention that Roy announced an investment for 1.1 million Canadian dollars as part of an initiative to promote local music produced during the pandemic, which suggests her heart is in the right place. Good, just to the left. Yes. Next question. What do Ringo Starr and a brand of sex toy have in common? Is it the name? I think he's just stopped suing Ringo's. Mm. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, technically, there is nothing in common between oh, right. them now. After okay, the, legally, speaking, legally speaking, nothing. Sorry, the, don't want the, to get the, the lawyers involved. The parent companies of sex toy Ringo, which is apparently part of the Screaming O range, have reached an out-of-court settlement with the former Beatle, agreeing to... Quote, unquote, avoid any activity likely to lead to confusion between their product and the musician. And the deal says that companies can only use the name for adult sex aids and desensitizing sprays. I, I don't know what you use. That. No, let's not go into it. Uh, and must have a space between the ring and the O. Uh, Star wants absolutely nothing to do with the goods, adding that any connection would tarnish his name, likeness and brand. Some sad news. Which top London university is looking down the barrel of a nearly 25% cut to its music department? Oh, now this is sad. It's uh, Royal Holloway, isn't it? Mm. And I'm always finding myself surrounded by musicians who at one stage or another have gone through Royal Holloway, whether that's undergrad or master's or, or doctorate level. Uh, big shout out to Dr. Tim Summers, who's there. He basically invented Ludo Musicology, which is right. video game music and oh, uh, cool. the analysis of that. Uh, he's such a dedicated teacher, and I learned a lot about how to write and think from him when I was an undergrad and he was a doctoral student. I just think it's a, a terrible shame. Why yes. would you take apart a wonderful asset? Yes. Well, sadly, this might not be the first music department to see cuts in the coming years. You'll remember a few weeks back, the government announced it was planning to cut funding for high cost subjects, including mm. music at higher education by 50%. Let's hope the Department of Education sees sense before any departments are forced to close completely. 
Moving on, why have Mozart and Haydn appeared in the European Journal of Neurology this week? Well, I bet it's because some academics have done some hard work, the kind of hard work that they do at Royal Holloway. But uh, is it because they have positive effects on your brain? I feel yes. like I've seen a thing before where Alan Yentob lies in an MRI machine and his whole brain goes because they play him Mozart. Yes, you're, you're on the right track. Music by Mozart has been shown to have an anti-epileptic effect on the wow. brain and could potentially represent a treatment to prevent epileptic seizures, according to researchers at the SciTech Masaryk University in the Czech Republic. Their studies demonstrate that listening to the Sonata for Two Pianos K448 led to a reduction in epileptiform discharges, EDs, in epilepsy patients, while listening to Haydn's Symphony Number no. 94 led to an increase in EDs. It's fascinating stuff that I still haven't got my head round, but if you've got a science mind and want to read more about the research, see the link in the episode notes. Next question, why have Shaker Cannon Mason and the Home Office clashed this week? Ah, well, it's the Home Office being vandals, isn't it? They're chopping up his passport when he applied for a second passport. Yes, this is correct. He, the British cellist, had applied for a second passport to help with applications for visas and international work permits, which are now required as a result of new Brexit and COVID regulations. However, while his sister Isita's application was successful, his was not, and his own original passport came back cancelled with no explanation. Oh. Only after he made a public appeal on Facebook did the Home Office apologise, claiming human error but one has to wonder if someone with the same platform would have been able to resolve the problem as quickly as Sheku did. I don't think yeah. they would have. That's if he tweets it out, then that's quite a big news story, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Whereas if little old me does, that's probably not the same. No. Um, if only he'd had a, a second uh, holiday home and he could have gone and visited it like Stanley Johnson. That would all yes, be fine. Yes, exactly. Which other black classical artist has this week been mistreated over supposedly false travel documentation. Ooh, I don't know this one. It's the South African soprano Pretiende who was oh. subjected to a body search at a Paris airport after French authorities told her she didn't have the proper documents to enter the country. She was due to start in a production of Bellini's La Sonnambula at the Teatro de Champs-Élysées and had a provisional residence permit from Italy where she lives, which her lawyer states is all that's required by law to gain entry. Although she did eventually gain entry, after the ordeal, she also took to social media to share her experience, saying she was stripped and searched like a criminal offender. We've linked her Instagram post in the episode notes if you'd like to share it. It's really sad quite shocking story actually yeah and those are the kind of extra travel difficulties that people may well be running into mm -hmm. now post-brexit just you've got to have all the right paperwork and maybe even if you do have all the right paperwork someone's going to question it yeah exactly finally sam i'm sure you're aware that peter schmeichel is a classical music fan oh yeah yeah big oh, pianist yeah. which other goalkeeper has been in the news this week declaring his love of beethoven I read this. I think it's Britain's most handsome goalkeeper mm, and handsome. the player manager of the Kerala Blasters in the Super League. I think he still is that. It's David James, isn't it? It's David James, yeah. He wrote an editorial in the Times this week, which he revealed it was his grandmother, a pianist for one of the local churches in Welland Garden City, who got him into classical music. The whole length of Beethoven's Ninth is just long enough to do a good session on a gym bike, he told Neil Fisher. Ah, uh, apparently, the last movement also featured on the England T20 
team playlist for the 2006 World Cup, but it was skipped over. Aww. <laughs> That's really sad, isn't it? Um, James also well? suggested that if England win the Euros this year, quote-unquote, it'd be wonderful if somebody could compose a new piece, an English ode to joy, a proper classical salute to England. Drop it, it isn't worth it, and actually, you're not very good at it. Let's talk about Dido. Dido, the singer-songwriter, the only artist to have two entries in the UK top ten best-selling albums of the noughties. Well, no, but our protagonist is certainly no angel. Ah, you must mean Dido Harding, then, who, even in her real job as chief executive of the Talk Talk group, refused to resign, even after the loss of millions of users' personal data. Who oversaw the pouring of 37 billion taxpayers' pounds into the financial Mariana Trench that is Circo Test and Trace? Well, no, Tim, I don't know. 37 billion, Sam, that's so much money. You could buy every single copy of Dido's No Angel in existence, for two and a half grand each, and still have enough Wonga left over to run an effective advertising campaign reminding people that the successful vaccination programme has been run by the NHS rather than being outsourced like Test and Trace. As soon as we have the budget available, we will run that campaign, Tim, and perhaps the big bucks will start rolling in if we start talking about Dido, Queen of Carthage, and the first four letters of Henry Purcell's only opera, Dido and Aeneas. What a hit. Remind us of the story. Based on Virgil's The Aeneid, we start with Aeneas washing up in Carthage after the Trojan War. Known for the famous horse disguise. The Queen of Carthage, Dido, and castaway Aeneas fall in love. Following this, some witches turn up and remind Aeneas that he's got to go and found the Roman Empire. Can one found an empire? And so he buggers off. She gets very upset and kills herself. But before she does, she provides the third act's big moment and sings a cracking lament we'll be taking apart today. The first performance may have been in 1688-89-ish in a girls' school in Chelsea, run by our future band name, Josias Priest, Dance Master. Although that's a little disputed now by some academics. A good caveat. DNA wasn't performed at all from 1705 to 1895, and only started being performed on the reg in the mid-20th century, thanks to the Baroque revival. And yet, in 2010, Dido's Lament was voted the nation's favourite aria. Or at least the Radio 3 audience's favourite. Here's a smidge to get everybody in the mood. There are so many juicy bits in this five minutes of music. Mm, juice with bits in. It's got two main parts. A recitative, which has more flexibility in tempo and delivers the consequential action. 
and an aria. Where the emotional reaction to those events are given some airtime in a more song-like form. Yep, and that's pretty much standard fare for Baroque opera. But Purcell doesn't just let those two narratively neighbouring bits stay musically separate. There's some binding material in there. Between the vocal melody in the recitative and the aria's bass line. In the recit vocal melody, if we take just the accented key landmark notes and transpose them down a fourth, you get this. And then in the aria, the bass line is this. Snap! Snap indeed. And then the aria bass line becomes a ground bass. Uh, we grind it down into a delicious, juicy, bitty paste? Not quite. It means it repeats over and over. It's quite a common form from the time. There are actually three others in the opera. Stevie Wonder also uses one in his transcendent song, They Won't Go When I Go. Arguably even better in the George Michael cover. Returning to Dido's Lament, this ground bass is odd. Why is this one odd? Well, it's got some quirky things going on. It's a five-bar phrase, which is wonderfully unsymmetrical, and it also includes every semitonal increment from G to D. We hear notes that suggest we're major, and then some that imply we're minor. There's light and shade in this one. There's ambiguity about, thanks to that lingering on every downward step. How many times does it repeat? Well, let's see. It's once, twice, three times a lady. Four, five, once I caught a fish alive. Six, seven, the NHS was founded by Anna Ryan Bevan. Eight, nine, taste that sparkling English wine. Ten, eleven, Dido's dead but ain't off to heaven. Eleven times we hear that bass phrase. What an odd number of phrases. It is strange. And what's even odder is that the phrases do not coincide with the singer. Analogy time? Sure. Imagine you've got your Lego bricks out. Watch your feet, very painful to tread on. And you've got the singer block, which is mostly nine bobbles long, mm -hmm. and the bass line piece, which is five bobbles long. Mm -hmm. When you stick them together into a musical wall, they won't line up very often. Does Purcell do the same thing in his other ground basses in the opera? Ah, well, he does it in the other one that Dido sings. Called Ah, Belinda. Ah, Belinda. But not in the dancey one, nor in Oft She Visits, which is sung by the disappointingly named character... Second woman. So Dido is always out of place, whereas the others fit in. We might pick up through the music that she's at odds with the world around her. And the scrumptious harmony helps that feeling too. So many tritones, it'd make Thomas Tallis's 40 parts jangle. And the string lines are just suspension city. Here are some of the best ones from the outro or ritonelle at the end of the aria. Ritonel should mean a return, but at this point in music history, it was basically a term for a, a bit of something else. Maybe an intro, maybe a play out, like that one. Well, this aria has returned to the airwaves again and again, hasn't it? Since it was first recorded by 19-year-old Nancy Evans of Liverpool, everyone from the great Norwegian muskox of opera, Kristen Flagstad, to the 90s vampiric king of the cover, Jeff Buckley, has had a go. It's popped up in Hitler's bunker as part of the 2004 film Downfall, and can even be heard on the keys of the modern jazz quartet's vibraphone. It's become a sort of musical shorthand for 
poignancy and tragedy, but I have a quibble, Tim. I'm sure you can get a cream for that, Sam. No, I have a Purcell problem. Oh, really? And it's with the Dublin-born poet laureate Nahum Tate. So what's the problem? He wrote the libretto, the sung words for Dido and Aeneas. And I just don't find it a very tragic story. You don't tend to favour royals, even if they are washed up on foreign shores. Your family cut you off? Yeah. In the first half, the first quarter of 2020. No. So I'm just putting it out there that if you rewrote the text to tell a truly tragic story, then the music, which cannot be beaten, would have a much better match. I don't suppose you have one in mind? Funny you should mention it, Tim. I'd like to tell you a tragedy about penguins. Oh, no. You mean the animal that Star Trek hunk Benedict Cumberbatch can't pronounce? So why are these woodlands so attractive to penguins? The very same. This penguin escapade, or should I say... Icecapade. Yes, you should. Occurs in January 1911, just a few weeks before Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier premieres in Dresden, Roald Amundsen and his South Polar Expedition team land on the Ross Ice Shelf in the Antarctic. Amundsen, the great Norwegian explorer, with a face like a slapped horse. In October of that year, he set off with a team of five on what would become the first successful trip to the South Pole. Well done, then. Amundsen won the race to the Pole, beating the greatest middle name in history, Robert Falcon Scott, who arrived a month later and suffered terribly on his expedition with scurvy. How did the scurvy not affect Amundsen's men? Penguins. Penguins? According to Julian Sancton, author of Madhouse at the End of the Earth, Amundsen had learnt on previous expeditions that a diet of raw penguin meat helped stave off scurvy as it's a rich source of vitamin D. A tasty, uncooked pingu pie has, in fact, got the same nutritional value as a satsuma. And this is where the tragedy begins to pile up, Tim. The penguins had no fear of humans. They hadn't encountered them before, so the crew hailed them with a trumpet. The penguins came to them, waddling over the ice like a homing multivitamin. It's debatable whether this was against the spirit of the expedition. Is the native wildlife deemed protected at this time? They certainly didn't shout about the tactic when they got home. So we have the tragedy of the penguins being eaten. Not just being eaten, but being called to their death by a trumpet like some archangel of Oslo. Also, members of Captain Scott's expedition, who all died, had the cure to their disease all around them, but they just didn't know it. Tragic. And the Norwegian explorers had to live with the knowledge that their greatest achievement was fuelled by an unshareable truth that they must take to their graves, their act of svenskeformicide. The murder of penguins. The collective noun's actually a waddle. Tragic. Norway has been celebrating these explorers for a century, not knowing the truth. Tragic. A fair bit more tragic than a queen who misplaces her affections and should just fall back on the raft of male concubines she's been cultivating. Just imagine if Purcell could have set his amazing music to a tale as tragic as that one. Just imagine. Thy tasty flip Eating it sustains me Your flower staves off scurvy I play trumpet to lure you in Now this pied Sing sorry, Penguin. 
Don't tell Norway They think we're all so nice and brave Not the kind of blokes who send Sweet penguins, sweet penguins to their grave Scott would be furious He'd have won the Antarctic Grand How are you? What have you been up to? Uh, I've I've been I've doing lots of different things this week. I was up in Glasgow for two days on Monday and Tuesday, recording some student composers' works. I'm in a duo with a flautist up there, Ruth Morley, uh, who plays in Red Note Ensemble. And then, what was I doing? Wednesday, I was working in a school in Canary Wharf with the Mars Yas Trio and a filmmaker doing workshops in schools. And now I'm working on creatively reworking some Wagner oh <laughs> what's the Wagner you're reworking uh it's a project right right at the beginning right, right at the beginning of the the seed it's uh it's with opera up close it's a one of their new projects but a touring production of Wagner's Dutchman for mm-hmm. seven piece ensemble and wow. the ensemble also sing they are the chorus right okay I like so, it it's pretty epic and I'm throwing in some synth and some accordion and things like that. So Yeah, quite right. I wonder what what Mr. Wagner would have thought of that himself. Um, Reducing my forces to seven people. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he wouldn't be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of makes it all the sweeter, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Yeah. I feel bad about saying it, but it's also somewhat satisfying. I'm not yeah. sure why. <laughs> Hey, well, I've just been listening to the new Ed Sheeran song. Oh, wow. Okay. I know. <laughs> I have not vibes. listened to it yet. Hey, it's going to be an absolute smash pop banger for this summer. I can tell it's got that vibe about it. 80s synth pop, dancey vibes. Ooh, Watch okay. the video. He's got some vampire teeth. Wow. Ed Sheeran with vampire teeth. That's quite something. Yeah. I don't like him, but I don't know. He seems like a really nice guy and I feel really bad about not liking him. That's the thing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I actually weirdly saw him uh, in the Lake District the other weekend because no my way. husband was trekking 100 kilometres for Anthony Nolan Foundation and he was up there supporting it, I think. Uh, oh. And he was just wandering through Kendall, going to the pub. Oh, <laughs> see, he's a grounded man. I have a connection yeah. to Ed Sheeran as well. He's married to to Sherry Seabon, who I went to uni with. Ah. Um, she was in my year, and she actually went out with a friend of mine for quite a long time. And by all accounts, she was really nice. 
and they must just be really happy and enjoying themselves in their country house writing slightly naff music. Exactly. Hey, let's talk about uh, House's Slide. It's this your new commission for London Sinfonietta being premiered on 9th of July. Can you explain to me how and why the Southbank Centre will be shutting off its power grid for the evening? Uh, yes, I can. So they will be they will be shutting it off for the performance. Uh, yes. Lots of health and safety things. Obviously, prior to that, getting the audience in, we can't have all the lights off, etc. Mm. Um, but for the performance, they will be, and we will be powering all of the electronics, amplification, etc., with our uh, bicyclists, bicyclists, and they will also be powering the lighting as well. So the stand lights for all the musicians. I think there are seventeen bicyclists or uh, in the piece so far. I'm not sure if it's seventeen or eighteen or something, but yes. So it's there's lots of reasons why we decided to embark on this very peculiar adventure, <laughs> which are firstly we wanted to create a work that was kind of an offering to the arts industry as a provocation, something to create dialogue that would provoke people to think or reassess how they create work and the parameters in which they create work, how carbon heavy the work is that they create, etc. So it's kind of that, but also it's very much a, a concept for the piece of... The singer who is cycling throughout the work, she's kind of going on this journey of acknowledgement of climate change. So she begins in a state of kind of epiphany, the realisation that climate change is a thing. Mm -hmm. And then she goes into a state of kind of immersion where she is going through all the research, listening to all the different opinions, perspectives about climate change, both climate deniers, scientists, people that do some recycling, you know, all different kinds of approaches and becoming overwhelmed by the information, the kind of uh, the colossal size of the problem and then goes into the next stage, which inevitably is climate depression and climate anxiety. Um, and then she comes out of that stage in a state of kind of semi-resolution and the decision to act in some way. Mm. But that kind of journey that we go on with something that is so uh, complex and kind of intangible, uh, like climate change, this physicality that the singer is also having to go through, um, it's kind of, it's really, really embodies that psychological journey as well. So it's both a provocation kind of politically for the arts industry, but also mirroring the psychological journey of people going through kind of the different stages of climate psychology, climate depression, etc. Yeah. So we've got 17 cyclists on stage, as well as the singer, Jessica Azodi. Jessica Azodi. Yeah, who you've worked with before, right, uh, on other projects, or she's performed in other projects yes. of yours. Yeah. I, I mean, that's amazing. What? How, how does she feel about, the, <laughs> about that? Is this, is this her breaking out of her comfort zone, do you think? Uh, weirdly, although it's difficult, it's kind of totally within Jessica's comfort zone right. in terms of the idea of it. Like Jessica's really interested in pushing herself as a performer and especially in kind of physicality. Like she's done one piece where she had to train in free diving breathing. Wow. Um, and she kind of puts her head underwater for three minutes before beginning the performance. So like she's done lots of lots of like really bold work. And so when I asked her about, you know, would you mind singing this 
40 minute work while cycling at the same time. Uh, she was actually pretty optimistic yeah. <laughs> about it. I suppose that's probably one of the least wacky things that she's done in recent times. So she's had her head underwater <laughs> before. Yeah, a exactly. But it does mean a lot of training. Like she's got a bike set up in the corridor of her flat in Berlin, mm. uh, where she's kind of doing her, you know, hours of biking a day whilst singing. Right. So, okay. And that physicality, like, both in the music and I mean, literally on stage in this case, is quite an important aspect of your work, right? I mean, I'm thinking of, uh, women box where where you yourself learnt to box for quite a long time before the performance and you boxed throughout the performance and and even in pieces like um, FFF because there's there's a lot of physicality in that aren't you you're uh, wearing some fantastic leggings as you're walking around the stage and and there's a video on YouTube actually if if anybody hasn't checked that out it's a great um, I, I mean other than reinforcing that carbon neutral message of the work I mean is there another more sort of artistic motive for this getting her to cycle on stage i mean i i, I don't know p pushing the boundaries of what's possible on on stage for example is is that part of it um i definitely say from a personal perspective <laughs> that might be part of it like as, as you mentioned i'm really interested in physicality and performance and i kind of in my own performances i'm really interested in exhaustion and right. uh, and i think it i think it comes from you know, I trained in theatre and as a composer. So I trained at theatre school and like at music college. And in so much of my practice and everyone's practice at conservatoire in Western classical music is that kind of constant seeking of perfection in performance and like trying to get as close to that in some way. Um, and when I was studying theatre, I did a lot of work on Grotowski, the Polish theatre maker, where a lot of it is about pushing through an absolute state of exhaustion, exhausting the body and the mind so that you can kind of no longer think and you just are pure expression. And so like my mind is kind of a meeting of those two worlds. Mm. So I'm fascinated by what happens in performance when people are pushed to extreme states, whether that be psychological or physical. And obviously with this particular piece, uh, that will be cycling whilst trying to uh, count <laughs> and yeah. sing the right notes, uh, which I think is certainly because, I mean, even when Jessica's been practicing it, she's saying, I'm finding it really hard not to cycle in the metronome marking. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> That's it. I, I mean, obviously part of the intent behind this work is to communicate um, a sense of urgency for the audience members to spur people into action and what advantage does this quote-unquote artistic form of activism have over more you know obvious forms of campaigning like going out with your megaphone in the street what do you think you're adding by doing this on stage I think there's lots of different things and obviously each each different approach that people take in their life to draw focus to a certain political or social issue is you know completely valid and for me um this is this is the way that I choose to do it because I think this is the best way that I can do it personally. Yeah. Um, I like to create dialogue. I, I've never ever wanted to kind of set out making a work that forces people to think anyway. Like one of the things that was really important in this project when we did the open call and we sent out these questions and asked people to respond to them, um, we really, really wanted some hardcore climate deniers. 
Um, right. And and we did get a couple. We did get a couple of climate deniers and people talking about the fact that they would never be getting rid of their SUV kind of thing, uh, which was, you know, joyous for the project because we really, really wanted to kind of embrace all different perspectives and opinions as well and feelings about this subject matter. And I think that's what art is great at doing. It's It's about offering something that can then be a provocation for dialogue and conversation. Whereas activism where you're going out and maybe protesting or engaging in a march is more kind of, you know, it can be more one-sided, which I also think is really important, obviously. But I suppose I'm really interested in people talking because I think that's something that we're forgetting to do a lot about a lot of things. Yeah, it's that soft power approach, isn't it? It's, It's creating a platform, as you say, for discussion and often it's it's kind of like um uh nudge psychology you know you're not, you're not necessarily um telling people what to do but you're laying out a path for them to realize the right thing to do for themselves in a way yeah exactly I, I mean for me the the obvious t- sort of touchstone for this kind of uh musical and I'm not going we're not going to call it activism but this 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 musical expression of grief of the climate crisis is John Luther Adams and becoming ocean and become desert. Was he an influence for you at all on this piece? I mean, it's a completely different sound world from what I gather from listening to your work compared to his, but (laughs) (laughs) to state the obvious, was he a touchstone for you or or not at all? Certainly not musically, as you you kind of pointed out. But I think, I mean... A lot of composers have been a touchstone for me across all of my work because I I make a lot of work that's not necessarily political but also engages with the environment in some way. It's one thing, like, part of my work is very much engaged with contemporary culture and the other part, in some ways, is kind of pastoral, even though it doesn't sound pastoral, but it's got that kind of love of nature (laughs) Mm. um, and landscape. And I think that's where I sit uh, in terms of my relationship to people like John Luther Adams and people like Sariaho as well, uh, some of her work and its kind of reflection on uh, the ocean um, and water as uh, as a concept. And I think there are many composers that approach that in different ways. And for me, I'm always trying to find ways to tie it with words, I suppose, because there's always a huge amount of text in my works. Mm. And I think that's just an avid desire to find ways for it to communicate in maybe a more direct way, maybe less abstracted, um, but also to a wider range of people. You know, I'm from a completely non-artistic family. And so sometimes just having words can be a a really strong way in for Mm. people that maybe aren't so familiar with uh, classical music and particularly contemporary classical music, I think. Yeah. I was interested to see that on one of your previous scores, I can't remember which the piece was, you had you covered this graphic score with ver- words that resonated with you, but weren't necessarily used in the performance of the piece. What was it called? I can't remember. It was a, <laughs> it was you talking about this piece on YouTube, and there was, uh, um, and it was. I was just really interested to see that this score covered in words, and yeah, the singer that was performing the piece didn't necessarily have to sing them all, and and that's an element of your work as well, isn't it? That it's it's very it, you would like to encourage improvisation in performance and has is that the case with this piece as well are you actively encouraging Jessica Azodi to riff on what's there on the score or is it is it a lot more prescriptive this time 
Um, there's a bit of both actually in this piece. So there's a section of the work where, because there's a, quite a significant amount of text in this work because of all the verbatim responses, mm. uh, which Cordelia, the librettist, and I had to kind of go through and find ways to tie it all together. Uh, but there's one section of the work which kind of goes into an almost kind of quasi-Bakettian chant kind right. of moment. And it's all very, very specifically notated for the first kind of few minutes of it. And then, like, there's a moment where I allow Jessica to kind of just release from the restrictions of the rhythmic kind of constraints that I've placed on it. And also the hope is that at that point, she will be at the optimum exhaustion stage <laughs> in the work. And so like reaching that psychological and physical state at the same time as being given freedom, mm. I think can be a really interesting thing for musicians. And it's something I've played with before and actually does different things with different players. Like sometimes that sudden freedom is actually too much and you, you don't know what to do with it. But mm. sometimes that sudden freedom can be a huge cathartic release, I think, for a performer. And certainly for me as a performer, I like those moments where you're allowed to allow that bit of freedom. Yeah. The piece is also built specifically as a, a quote unquote, a woman's response to the climate crisis. Why is the woman's focus important to you other, other than being a woman yourself? And how is that played out in the piece? Um, in the piece, I mean, most of the responses we were received were from women or mm -hmm. uh, girls as well. We had some from young girls and not on the whole, but most of them. And so we decided to kind of draw on that and have the focus point as a female character seem so that the majority of the verbatim text we're using it was from women. And having Jessica is kind of, for the first half of the work, she's almost journeying through all of these different voices because the voices exist in the kind of fixed tape part and she's listening to them and eventually they start to kind of seep into her own part and her own vocal work and eventually she becomes overwhelmed by these like huge range of different experiences emotions feelings uh, and then she finds her own kind of way through it and for me that really reflects actually most people's experience, regardless of gender, with something like climate change, whether you're a climate denier or not, the existence of the thing is quite overwhelming because mm. it's ever-present. It's quite often on the news. It's referred to almost daily in newspapers. Uh, so there's, it's this ever-present thing that we have to engage with and decide whether we want to act. And if we don't act, do we feel guilty or not? And there's this sign of sense of responsibility that's passed on to us. Mm. by the way that it's presented in kind of the PR of climate change, I suppose. We're given these kind of things that we should do, like we should have an electric car, we should recycle, we should do various other things. Um, and so there's this uh, responsibility that's placed on us and, and different people react to that in different ways. And I think particularly for women and its relationship to childbirth as well uh, is quite significant. Um, there's a fantastic play actually that looks at that. Um, in fact, it's on my shelf. I'm pretty sure it's Duncan Macmillan who wrote it called Lungs. And that particular play is exactly about that. It's about a couple deciding whether or not to have children. Mm. Um, so there's many different aspects and obviously this particular work focuses on the female narrative, but I think in terms of gender, they're quite similar. It's just mm -hmm. that in this particular case, we're focusing on that. Yeah. I was interested to read that you'd been, as well as powering the entire thing with bicycles, you've been 
really conscious of keeping track of things like Zoom meetings and screen time and the energy that you're using uh, when in the creative process. Has that made you more conscious or, or even more, maybe paranoid isn't the word, but more worried about your own uh, carbon footprint in throughout the creative process? Have you become a lot more aware of it? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> and I also remember I did a panel discussion with Gabriel Prokofiev for Music yeah. Declares. And um, he was talking about kind of the, the carbon heavy nature of the cloud mm. and cloud storage. And, you know, it, I was really reflecting on the fact that a lot of my works use video mm. and a lot of the video aspects are stored on the cloud. And so I've, I'm now reverting back to kind of old-fashioned hardware really? storage. <laughs> I read a, an interesting piece by Alex Ross, the New York, the New Yorker classical music mm-hmm. critic. He was saying, and I, I believe him because he always, whatever he says sounds right. He said that CDs are actually the most carbon-friendly store, uh, way of distributing and playing music. And I, for some reason, thought the opposite would have been true because they're so, you know, big and... I assumed that they'd be really labor intensive to make CDs, but yeah, uh, much yeah. better than streaming uh, LPs and all the other forms. So that is yeah, it's so true. And Gabriel put that so well because he was talking about where something's on the cloud. All we're doing is moving the hardware to somewhere that we can't see it. Mm. It's basically on a farm. It's like you know a storage farm kind of thing. Yeah. And instead of it being in our own space, and we've got this idea that stuff is the worst thing to do to have the actual literal stuff in front of us but uh, actually sometimes like in that case like with cds it's actually it's better for the yeah. environment to do that yeah I mean, have a cd renaissance start getting the the cd racks back up against the wall and purposeful. building back <laughs> the collection classical music pod i should say Back to uh, the new piece. I was really interested to see that it's being directed by Katie Mitchell, who's kind of, she's kind of a, I think I'm right in saying a polarising figure in the British theatrical world and that she, uh, she's supposed to be incredibly controlling isn't the right word, but she's very, she really knows what she wants, what she wants. I, from what I understand, and there's a, a, brilliant anecdote from the playwright Simon Stevens who had a work of his being produced by being directed by Katie and apparently she sent him a list of 225 questions before the first rehearsal asking about the very minutiae of the script and what exactly was going on I, I was just wondering you know what what is what she liked what I mean you may not have started working with her yet but is that your experience of her? Is it is is it tough working with her, or is it an amazing collaborative experience? So this is I'm working on two projects with Katie. This one, and I'm also she's directing my opera, the Royal Opera House, next year. Right. Yes. So uh, that's the one, the Limbury, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. So we've been having lots and lots and lots of lots of conversations over the past kind of twelve months, eighteen months, uh, and I can honestly say it's just utter joy. Yeah. Working with Katie, she is just a a fountain of knowledge and especially on climate change Mm. 
because she's a huge climate change advocate. She makes, mm. She's made a lot of work about it for many years before it was something that everyone was really talking about that much. Uh, she was making work about it. Um, and she, like a lot of her work, she's doing a production of The Cherry Orchard, I think, somewhere in Europe, which focuses also on climate change. Mm. Uh, she did a play at the Schaubühne, which had the two actors in it cycling throughout the work as well, mm. uh, powering their performance. Um, and so working with her on this and her connections as well has been really useful because she has lots of uh, relationships with various uh, climate scientists and climate psychologists. Uh, one particular was Rosemary Randall, who's a climate psychologist, and she spoke to us about the different stages of climate depression, climate anxiety, which was really influential to the structuring of the work, actually. Right. Um, so those conversations have been hugely useful. But in terms of like the music, she is just unbelievably trusting. So she, you know, she was involved at a distance in the process of kind of collating the libretto from the verbatim text that we received and the original text that Cordelia's written. But in terms of the music, she's very, you know, she just goes, that's your you. job. Yeah. I trust you. And we'll go from there <laughs> kind of thing, which is, which is amazing to have that trust in your, in your capability from someone. Yeah. I, I was quite uh, impressed with another interview that I saw you give where you said that your best work has always uh, happened when you're when you're collaborating and you've very honestly said that if the process is the same every time then the product will always be the same and, that, and that's why you find collaborating so fruitful for you um, and I suppose is that's been the case working with Katie in this instance and, and with Cordelia as well and that it feels has it been very different to all of the other projects that you've done in the past just by working with those two is it completely different or are there elements that are very similar to previous projects of yours I think it's actually been quite different I mean one of the things that I can really uh kind of draw a parallel with is for instance you know like my piece FFF which you referred to mm. all of the texts for that I collated from various things from lots of academic journals and media and various other kind of sources and this this is a similar kind of libretto where it's kind of uh, you know a collage libretto let's say where different things are taken from different sources and then put together to make the the text and having Cordelia work on that and me having to kind of pass over that control was an interesting experience for me yeah, sure. uh, and but actually Cordelia is hugely collaborative and we had many conversations once she got the first draft of going back and forth and even right into the writing process uh, you know I get to a point in the piece and I'd be like I'm not actually sure if structurally this is going to work musically is there a way, way we can change the text at this point can we make it shorter or longer can we focus on this idea for a bit longer or not um which has been joyous because it's been a back and forth and really really fruitful it's interesting that you mentioned that word control because in fff as which we just been talking about you you were performing in it you were the the soloist or certainly you were in the performance that i saw you're not performing in this one i gather how does it feel to relinquish the con that aspect of control are you worried about that or uh no I'm not at all I mean I write for lots of other singers who are all very different to me and that's one of the things that I love doing like I've written two song cycles recently both for 
for singers who technically have the same voice type as me. They're both mezzo-sopranos mm. uh, and all three of us are completely different. So the works that I've written for myself and those two singers, Lucy Goddard and Rosie Middleton, are also completely different and wouldn't suit the other person kind of thing. They're so specifically written for them. And the joy of working with Jessica, I've worked with her once before. I've seen her perform lots. I've worked with her on a piece that was done in Australia. She is the an unbelievable level of musicianship, but she's also willing to go that many steps further than many performers will, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is a wonderful thing to have as a composer, especially someone like me. And obviously when I'm writing for myself, it's just me I'm writing for. I'm not going to moan at myself about the fact that I've asked myself to do something. So I'm very free in that way, but also writing for Jessica, I feel very free because she's incredibly open. She's very collaborative. We've had chats about the score since it's been finished and sections where she said, oh, I could do this or this. And we've changed a few bits to kind of maybe enhance it more for her or various things. And it's just, yeah, I'm just really excited because she is astonishingly good. I remember the first rehearsal for the last piece that I wrote for her and it was just uh, it was just amazing. I barely had anything to say. Mm. Well, my last question for you is have you any intention of being one of the cyclists during the performance is that or will you just be sitting back uh, and enjoying the ride as it were? I would love to be one of the cyclists, uh, but I'm not really allowed. That's You're not the allowed. problem. Oh, no. <laughs> because, because I've kind of got to sit with the sound people ah. and be able to listen to it from the other side for levels and the electronics yeah. aspect, which is disappointing because I am actually quite fit at the moment because I'm training for the London Marathon. Are so you? Great. <laughs> I might be able to kind of do a fairly decent job you know not not be too lagging in the team of cyclists yes are you sure this isn't just an elaborate excuse so that you don't have to you don't know i've got to i can't i've got to do the sound i've got to do the sound sorry i don't know like when you've put yourself through literally being punched in the face for a piece yeah. <laughs> which yeah. I, no you're right well for the boxing piece cycling is like super easy in comparison to sticking yourself in the boxing ring yeah yeah i bet <laughs> Before uh, before we go, we should say that uh, this is being it's being premiered on the 9th of July, Southbank Centre. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a great show. Are you excited? Are you nervous? Apprehensive? Uh, I'm always incredibly apprehensive and nervous really? before a premiere. Yes, I am always. Uh, Gosh, I'm also excited, but also terrified. Like actually terrified. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that will will not be justified. I I wish you the very best of luck. Very excited for it. And yeah, I uh, hope it goes well. Break a leg. Amazing. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Lovely to meet you, Laura. You too. Thanks, Timmy. Bye-bye. Bye. Finish! Any thank yous this week, Tim? None other than Laura. It was a real joy to speak to her. Uh, I'm looking forward to watching the piece. It sounds like it's going to be absolutely bonkers. It's going to be brilliant. (laughs) Great. Um, A reminder to listeners to like and subscribe and share this occasionally Penguin-based podcast as widely as you can. Mm -hmm. If anybody's looking for an anniversary of some kind in the coming days, July the 3rd is a good one. Mm. It's Ruth Crawford Seeger's birthday and Janacek's birthday. Oh, what a double whammy. Send them a moon pig. Yes. Card. 
beyond He loved his letters, did Janacek. Wrote lots of letters about to that woman, Camilla. The young one. Yeah, mostly about bread, as I remember. That's very strange. Yeah. Incidentally, July the 3rd is also the anniversary of the founding of Quebec. Oh, nice. Which links us nicely back to the beginning of the episode. It's like we've, you've come full circle. We through composed the whole podcast. Mm. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus.